why scientific materialism is wrong about almost everything. Hey, I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and this is my book review of why science is wrong about almost everything. It's kind of an off-putting book title, isn't it? And it is by Alex Tazares. I think that's how you say his name. I apologize if it isn't. So in this podcast, we're going to go deep. We're going to go deep into science, spirituality. We're going to explore some mysteries that are out there that you might not be really familiar with. I think this one is going to give you a lot to think about. And the full review, everything that I mention here, you're going to find linked below wherever you are watching or listening to me over there on LimitlessMindset.com. As per the usual, I've got all the links to all the good stuff. So if you want to delve into some of the rabbit holes that I'm going to kind of, I'm going to kind of, uh, kind of push the bushes aside and show you some, some rabbit holes that are worth exploring here. And so you can continue that subterranean journey via my website. And then this podcast, I don't do like a real aggressive pitch thing in my podcast, not typically at least. So if you appreciate this, if this is kind of like information that you find stimulating, then I would just urge you to share it around. I I bet you got someone in your life that is interested in this kind of stuff and you can send it on over to them. And then all the normal good stuff, which is the, uh, the subscribing, the upvoting, the leaving of the comments, all that I really do appreciate. And I'm not just saying that. Whenever I get a good comment on my articles or my videos or whatever, I will say to my wife, I'll say, babe, babe, look at this great comment that, uh, that, we, just, that we just got. So we do appreciate that. So, Let's dive into the book review. This 170-page yellow book by Alex Tazaris, the host of the Skeptico podcast, is a striking nail in the coffin of scientific materialism. And we'll explain shortly just what I mean by scientific materialism. So... I was raised an evangelical Christian, and then in young adulthood, I became a quiet agnostic, and then I became a materialist atheist because of philosophical arguments that I absorbed. I think I was a materialist atheist for maybe five to seven years, but now I'm a Christian. Again, a decision solidified by the evidence detailed in this book. 
And a little later on in this podcast, I'll uh, detail, I'll touch on that transformation. Because usually people, I don't think people often go from atheist to Christian. I think it's probably a whole lot more common that they go from Christian to atheist or Christian to agnostic. So I'll explain my reasoning behind that. So about this book, like a lot of podcasters' books, this one is largely comprised of uh, excerpts of interviews. And so you might say, why would I read, sit down and read this book if I can just listen to the podcast for free and learn the same thing? Well, there are over 500 Skeptico shows. Do you have that kind of listening time on your hands? Also, the host, Alex, can be an abrasive interviewer. So you might not want to spend like dozens of hours of your life listening to him argue with people on the podcast. I guess it kind of depends if, if that's what you like to listen to in podcasts. Me, I, I, I prefer to sit down and, and read a book that didn't even take that much time to read. And Rupert Sheldrake wrote the foreword for the book, and I'll quote from it here. He says, science is not wrong about almost everything. So he's disagreeing a bit with the author, I suppose. What he says is it is right about a great many things, or right enough. Everyone is appropriately impressed by computers, smartphones, the internet, jet planes, hip replacement, surgery, antibiotics. I don't think I'm very impressed with antibiotics. Solar panels and many other technological inventions that enrich and sustain our lives. Science is right about the existence of galaxies beyond our own, about the structures of molecules, about the existence of fossils, about low temperature superconductivity, and many, many other things. What it's seriously wrong about is the nature of life and consciousness. If my consciousness, or your consciousness, dear leader, is something, anything, other than a product of my brain, then science is out of business until it figures out exactly how my consciousness interacts with this world. Ooh, that's profound. Isn't it? Let me repeat that final line. If my consciousness is something, anything, other than a product of my brain, then science is out of business until it figures out exactly how my consciousness interacts with this world. So this book is a refutation of the secular dogma that the author has coined the dopey science creed, which is, first of all, I maintain that my life has no purpose and no meaning. The same is true for the entire universe. There is no purpose to anything. 
Second, I affirm that my morals come from my genes and my conditioning, not from decisions I make. Free will is an illusion. My personal identity is an illusion. Third, there are no good deeds or good people. There is no bad, evil, or wrong either. Fourth, every report of encounters with spirits, angels, ghosts, and supernatural beings is bunk. The credibility or number of witnesses doesn't matter. It's all bunk. And fifth, I am my physical brain and nothing more. The death of my body is the death of me. And personally, having listened to dozens of uh, Sam Harris's podcasts and those of other quote-unquote skeptics, I can confirm that these five points are pretty much their doctrine. And so now I really consider most skeptics out there to be useful idiots. All that they do is serve power, be it globalist corporations or neoliberal big government. And I created a really great meme to illustrate this. I have a cute yet very serious looking kitty that says, I'm a skeptic. I believe in the science funded by government and corporations. And I believe in what I was taught in public school and what the mainstream media repeats, and what academia preaches, and what my television says, and what celebrities espouse, and what the government tells me, that one's very important, and what the corporations tell me, and what I find on Google, YouTube, and Wikipedia. Everything else is just a crazy conspiracy theory. And when you encounter skeptics like this, you can uh, use this meme. You can download it from my website and use it on Twitter or in those Facebook groups with all those, those people who think that they're skeptics. But like Mr. Skepticat in my meme, they are really dogmatics. So many of Sam Harris's podcasts, uh, especially the recent ones, are just regurgitation of CNN's talking points on current events. But he released a four-hour episode entitled Engineering the Apocalypse this year that is really worth listening to about the looming threat of bioterrorism. And bioterrorism, like engineered viruses, is being made easier than ever for extreme nihilists because of the uh, amazing advances that have been made in the field of synthetic biology. It, it really is an interesting four-hour show. I do link to that in the article. And the, the really sad irony that uh, Sam is totally unaware of throughout this whole podcast is that uh, Sam Harris and his ilk tirelessly spread a demoralizing ideological 
cocktail. And it's a three-part cocktail. First part is atheism. And in atheism, there are no metaphysical consequences for evil. There are no consequences for your actions that will inescapably accrue to you in this life or in the next life. Second ingredient is materialism. You are a biological robot in a meaningless universe. And thirdly, there's no free will. You aren't actually in control of your actions and the way your life goes. You're just, you're just a biological robot. You got some programming that's gone into you in your genes, and it kind of feels like you're making good decisions or bad decisions. It feels like you're making uh, the decision to go on the keto diet as opposed to having cake whenever you feel like it so that you can be healthier in the long term. But, but that's just an illusion. That's just, a, that's just an illusion. You're just fooling yourself by thinking you actually have that free will to make better decisions so you can live a, a better life and be uh, more contributing to society. And so this ideological cocktail, I contend, and I commented on the podcasting question, this ideological cocktail is guaranteed to produce extreme nihilists, demoralized, hopeless, and seething with anger at the world. The kinds of people that would want to cook up using synthetic biology, it's getting easier and easier for them, and then release upon the world a truly horrifying pandemic that could take billions of lives. So that is the, that, that, that's the kind of potential consequence of scientific materialism, of this particular worldview. And so that's why there's a lot of people pushing back on it. And I'm uh, thankful that this book was written doing exactly that. Each chapter opens with a quote from an esteemed scientist chipping away at the edifice of scientific materialism. From the physicist David Bohm, quote, Science is predicated on the concept that science is arriving at truth, a unique truth. In a way, science has become the religion of the modern age. It plays the role that religion used to play of giving us truth. Yes, uh, there was some place where I came up with a definition of science and I said that science is asymptotically, asymptotically trying to approach truth. And uh, the asymptote, I think I'm saying that word correctly, the asymptote is you got, you got two lines in geometry and the two lines are uh, intersecting, are, are, are intersecting each other. And the asymptote is the closest point in the bisecting line where it has not yet bisected the lateral line. And that's what science should be. It should be, we're acknowledging that we have not arrived at 
absolute truth, but we're trying to get as close as possible, and we have, uh, we have egos that are proportional to that asymptotic approach of truth as opposed to being uh, filled with pompous sense of certainty that we, we have reached it, we are there. Another physicist, Bruce Rosenblum, adds, quantum physics is stunningly successful. Not a single prediction of the theory has ever been wrong. However, quantum mechanics also displays an enigma. It tells us that physical reality is created by observation, that it has spooky actions, instantaneously influencing events far from each other, without any physical force involved. Seen from a human perspective, quantum mechanics has physics encountering consciousness. Whoa, that's deep, isn't it? And Jeffrey Schwartz adds, Science is extremely good at explaining material aspects of reality. So it came to pass that they came to explain they should be good at explaining all aspects of reality. Science, in the way it's done to explain material aspects of reality, does not explain human behavior particularly well. It's radically incomplete. Does it have a contribution to make? Definitely. It has a contribution to make. But I think it's fair to say that any reasonable person would know that the science that works so well in explaining the material world does not work nearly so well explaining how human beings act and what human beings are and what it means to be a person, a human, a living, breathing, and even to use the word spiritual human being in the real world. So the book, like the Skeptigo podcast, which you may want to check out some episodes of, it delves into fringe science topics, which are a Fringe science is always something that I've been interested in. And it seems to me that the fringe of science is where the meaningful science is often probably going on. You can think about that scientist that first proposed that uh, doctors should be washing their hands um, in between doing surgery and delivering a baby which, of course, ended up saving millions and millions and millions, if not billions, of, of lives. And he was considered, that was considered fringy science for, for his lifetime, but that turned out to be where attention was most due. So one of the topics that really fascinates me is pre-sentiment, or you could call it pre-cognition. I'll quote from the book. Dr. Radin suspected human beings might possess the innate ability to sense an event that is going to happen before it actually happens. He then carried out a series of experiments to test the validity of this hypothesis. 
Raiden asked subjects to stare at a blank screen and wait for an image to be displayed. All the while, Raiden measured how far and at what times their physiological responses deviated from the baseline measurements. The baseline condition can be thought of as a participant's normal physiological state physical, mental, emotional, etc. When no experimental variable or stimulus has yet been applied to the test subject, Raiden discovered this by asking test subjects to stare at a blank screen and wait for an image to be displayed. During this time, he measured their physiological response to the image. Sometimes he measured galvanic skin response. Other times he measured pupil dilation or brain activity. But the goal was always to see if there was a detectable physiological reaction before the image appeared. Surprisingly, he did find such a reaction, particularly when troubling or extremely stimulating images were displayed. Raiden had published his results in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. He also, and this is important, he also replicated his work by repeating the experiment a number of times to make sure his results were consistent. He even collaborated with other independent researchers in labs throughout the world who were interested in replicating his results. As of this writing, Raiden's presentiment experiments have been successfully replicated over 25 times in seven different laboratories. Wow, that's uh, an amazing uh, amount of replicability that this, uh, that this experiment had. And the language of the abstract of the exhaustive precognition meta-analysis, I went and looked it up and I have it linked in the article, the language makes it clear that the researchers were not out to find something magical about the mind. But the inescapable conclusion is that at least some of us seem to have some prophetic capacity. And I'll quote from the meta-analysis of 26 reports published between 1978 and 2010, tests and unusual hypothesis. Four stimuli of two or more types that are presented in an order designed to be unpredictable and that produce different post-stimulus physiological activity, the direction of pre-stimulus physiological activity reflects the direction of post-stimulus physiological activity resulting in an unexplained anticipatory effect. The cause of this anticipatory activity, which undoubtedly lies within the realm of natural physical processes, as opposed to supernatural or 
paranormal ones remains to be determined. So you can hear uh, from the clearly from the abstract there that the researchers are not woo-woo people. They are saying there's got to be a scientific materialist uh, explanation for this this prophetic ability that the uh, data is bearing out, but we just don't know what it is. And the results from the pre-sentiment experiments replicated over and over again have mind-blowing implications for our understanding of consciousness and I would even say linear time. If humans have some capacity to predict the future, something that almost every child in Sunday school knows, then it suggests strongly that we are so much more than biological robots in a meaningless and random universe. It hints that our lives, so full of irony and coincidence, might be something like a novel penned by an unseen author. That's something to think about, isn't it? And actually, the idea of pre-sentiment I used as a plot device in an unfinished science fiction story I wrote, which was entitled A Post-Ops Devolution. And I did do a uh, podcast audiobook version of the, the chapters of this uh, science fiction short story. I'll link to those. Maybe you want to go and check those out. In fact, I will quote from the section in the book where I describe the pre-sentiment experiments. Here it is. Is mining an equal opportunity employment option? Absolutely not. Due to something called precognitive aptitude, certain post-ops can make drastically more money than others being mined. Back in 2011, a researcher conducted a bizarre experiment. He attached 26 human subjects to biofeedback monitoring, placed them in front of computer screens in sensory-deprived environments, and showed them at random various images, some eliciting strong emotional responses, but most not. A house, a car, a frog, a naked man being beaten in prison, a politician giving a speech, a kitten, a trail in the woods, the New York skyline, an anthill, a dead baby, etc. You get the idea. Where the experiment got really interesting was that they observed that the body would start showing minor physiological reactions before being shown the most emotionally shocking images, as much as five seconds prior to being shown the image. The really eerie part about this is that the images were generated completely at random. After showing hundreds of subjects many thousands of images, the data couldn't lie. The deviation from random chance was too high. The mind knew what was coming before the computer knew. The research made headlines worldwide for confirming what we've known for thousands of years and what science has denied for hundreds of years, that human beings have an uncanny ability to predict the future. Then the researcher got a little perverse and started showing pornographic images at random to the human subjects of the experiment. 
a red sports car, a buxom blonde giving a blowjob, a running back catching a pass, a disembodied victim of Ted Bundy, etc. This caused the pre-sentiment accuracy of the biological predictions to jump a few more points even higher above random chance. The mind's sexual arousal mechanism, stimulated by the porn, statistically was demonstrated as the most prophetic human agency. Further research repeated the experiments, but used a pre-ordered sequence of evocative images and found that humans were even better at predicting the future when it was already set in stone, or bites as the case was. The most precognitive minds could predict any given event occurring or not occurring within five seconds, with accuracy up to 10% better than completely random chance. A fascinating discovery with shockingly little utility to anyone except hedge fund managers who made or lost millions of dollars daily in high-frequency trading based upon minuscule movements in the value of stocks and currencies. Since images of porn and violence were the best predictive vehicles and financial instruments only move in two directions, up or down in value, the imagery could be tied to future outcomes of the movement of the market. This is how warp frequency trading was born, based upon telltale biological signs, like blood pressure increasing by a few degrees, hedge funds would enter or exit positions with tens of millions of dollars and profit by a few fractions of a percentage point in five seconds or less. Thus was minted a new generation of precognitive millionaires. Hopefully, hopefully that'll uh, pique your curiosity a bit and you, uh, you'll go and check out. That, uh, that short story, I do apologize, it's not finished, and I'm not sure if it will be. Next, we will move on to the placebo effect. As a biohacker, you're probably well aware of the placebo effect. I'll quote from the book. The placebo effect shows that your beliefs and expectations can significantly alter what's happening in your brain and the physiological systems connected to your brain. For example, in the last decade, there have been several brain and aging studies focused on the placebo effect. In one case, there was a very interesting study done at the University of British Columbia. They did a study to measure the impact of the placebo treatment on people suffering from a severe form of Parkinson's disease. In Parkinson's disease, there is a great level of destruction of the nerve cells, specifically the neuron producing a chemical messenger we call dopamine. Dopamine is the key chemical messenger in motor function, but it's also involved in many other activities. In this case, the patients had a level of nerve damage of about 70 to 80 percent, so the level of destruction of the nerve cells that produce dopamine was quite high. And of course, the patients were severely impaired from a clinical point of view. They had trouble moving. They were experiencing a lot of tremors. So the neurologist doing the study presented them a fake treatment. It was only distilled water, but 
they told the patients that this was potentially a revolutionary treatment for Parkinson's disease. A few minutes after the injection, they scanned them with a technology called positive emission tomography. They were interested in measuring the activity of dopamine in the brain. Very rapidly, those patients who believed in the bogus treatment started to produce and release dopamine into their brains in an amount comparable to that seen in young, healthy people. And clinically, they started to improve. They had less tremors, more strength, and were more optimistic, at least for a certain period of time. This is a nice illustration of the power of what we call mind. By mind, I mean our mental activity and mental events. In this specific case, the patient's improvement was related simply to the beliefs and expectations that the patients had regarding the fake treatment. They believed they would get better, and they did. And there's a whole branch of medicine called psychoneuroimmunology. First, I've heard of that. This is the relationship of thoughts and emotions to physical disease. And pretty much everybody, even in the straight, strictly Western medical community, now understands that 80 to 90% of physical diseases have an underlying emotional component. And this was something I also encountered when I read the book on the tapping solution to chronic pain. And they had numerous case studies of people who had really debilitating chronic pain, but it was then discovered that that chronic pain could be assuaged and a lot of times totally overcame by people addressing an underlying emotional issue. As a biohacker, I have long been fascinated by the placebo effect. And anyone who holds science in high regard, you know how everyone says, oh, I believe the science. I believe the science. I believe in science. Anyone like that, they need to respect the awesome power of belief, which every gold standard clinical trial must account for. The reliability of the placebo effect is why I personally embrace uh, biohacks that many people would call kind of like woo-woo things. Like, for example, downloadable infaceutical medicine that I get from the IC pad here, which I am holding. And you should go and check out my biohacker review of it. Although I don't think it works uh, exclusively because of the placebo effect. And you can see just how irrational and how much science 
the mainstream scientists are ignoring in regards to the placebo effect. You can think about, oh, it was last year when COVID first hit. And there was, I think there was laws made that said that you couldn't claim that things like colloidal silver are helpful in preventing and treating COVID. The uh, vendors of colloidal silver were forbade by the FDA to say that their colloidal silver might help with COVID, even though there was a Japanese clinical trial that suggested that, even though there's hundreds and hundreds of years of uh, use of colloidal silver for uh, coronavirus diseases, they said, no, 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 no. And the whole scientific establishment, bunch of journals, academics, all these kinds of people came out and said, no, 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 these, uh, these, these supplement things, no, these, these wouldn't work to help you with, with COVID. And these people are ignoring uh, the mass, uh, the body of science around the placebo effect, which suggests that really anything could help with COVID as long as people believe it will. But of course, that's all, that's all ignored. Next, let's talk about near-death experiences, NDEs. What happens in the minutes and hours after we die and uh, are then fortunate enough to be reanimated is a major focus of the book and the Skeptico podcast. Quote, one of the main topics we talk about on this show a lot is the published research on near-death experiences. A lot of people don't know that there are over 100 peer-reviewed scientific papers on near-death experience. The percentage of time that people encounter deceased relatives is extremely high. It was actually 96% in the Enderf study and only 4% of near-death experiencers met beings who were alive at the time of the near-death experience. That's actually corroborated by another major scholarly study which found it was 95% of the time that they encountered beings they knew from their earthly life who were deceased. So for people to so consistently encounter deceased relatives is very, very strong evidence that they are indeed in an unearthly realm. And it certainly points to evidence of an afterlife. That's fascinating, isn't it? So the scientific materialist explanation of near-death experiences is when you're about to die, you get like a major um, dump of 
the uh, psychedelic molecule in your brain, kind of similar to what happens when you're dreaming and then your brain, as it's trying to stay alive, your brain comes up with this fantastic illusion for you. And this illusion that it comes up with for you is reflective of what you've heard about death. It's a uh, your brain, your unconscious mind grabs these uh, memories of what you were taught in Sunday school or whatever, and then it recreates that for you. And if that was the case, we it would not be 95, 94% of the time you encountering your deceased loved ones. It would be something like dreams. And... Do you encounter your deceased loved ones in dreams? I think it happened once to me. <laughs> and it wasn't even a, a person I loved. It was just someone someone who died, who was in my life a lot, a long time ago. What we see with dreams is that our in your dreams, you're encountering a whole lot of randomness. And then you're also encountering themes and things that you had encountered that day. So you watch like a scary movie and then you have something kind of reflective of that that shows up in your dreams. And near-death experiences, as very large studies have shown, that's not what's happening there. There appears to be something else happening there. And a point I'll make here, notably absent from the NDE research discussed in the book is reincarnation. In fact, the word doesn't even appear in the book. And the other evening, my wife and I got in a uh, spirited disagreement about reincarnation. She really believes in it, or uh, she, yeah, she, she likes the idea of reincarnation, and I find reincarnation deeply nonsensical and totally lacking in any kind of internal logical consistency. If I lose all or most of my, of my memories after reincarnation, if reincarnation is a thing, and my personality reforms in the new environment to which I am born, how am I still me? If my memories and personality from this life are near totally eradicated in reincarnation, what is being reincarnated? If I lose all my memories in this life that I got from this life, all those, all that hard-won experience from this life, how do I, quote-unquote, learn lessons as a reincarnating soul? Which is, that's the thing that people always say when they talk about reincarnation. They say, oh, you're here on this planet, you have this life to learn lessons, and if you don't learn those lessons, then you're going to have to repeat those lessons, or maybe you devolve into a lesser form of life or something like that. But the according to reincarnation, I lose almost all my memories, and my personality 
reform. So how am I going to be learning lessons? This is like if I'm trying to work on a Word document on my computer and then my computer keeps uh, deleting the Word document, how am I ever going to finish that Word document? This doesn't make sense to me and I don't see it as fundamentally very different from what atheists believe, which is that a brand new consciousness, if consciousness is even a thing, uh, develops within a mother's womb and then it is snuffed out completely upon death. However, I did look into this and there's a handful of Skeptico podcasts on the topic. I guess they didn't make it into the book including an interview that I linked to with a Dr. Jim Tucker. And having listened to those, as far as I can tell, the only evidence for reincarnation is anecdotal, and it's pretty dubious. Uh, there's some child who thinks that they were a World War II soldier in a past life, and they get a couple of details correct. I think that reincarnation, I think these memories that people have of past lives when they're under hypnosis or the, or the kids tell us about, I think these are much better explained by the phenomena of genetic memory. And in my book review of The Star Rover by Jack London, I touch on genetic memory. I wrote... There are numerous examples of us being born knowing things that we have never been taught, sometimes quite specific skill sets and elaborate knowledge sets. It stands to reason that we could be born with genetic knowledge of our ancestors' specific experiences. Indeed, this could account for a lot of supposed cases of reincarnation where a young child has accurate memories of some person that lived years before they were born. Scientists and philosophers have hypothesized that our junk DNA, our quote-unquote junk DNA, is not junk, that the junk is encoded memories from our genetic past lives. And so that book, The Star Rover, a lot of people think, and it's a beautiful, beautiful book. I highly recommend it. It's a novel. A lot of people think that book is about reincarnation, but I read it carefully, and I, I think it's about genetic memory. I don't think it's about reincarnation. Also, it seems to me that if reincarnation were real, it would actually be pretty easy to prove scientifically with data. Many millions of parents strongly believe in reincarnation and would allow their young children to be hypnotized. So you could get several hundred thousand reincarnation accounts into a database uh, you could put it out there on the internet, open source it, and there would be tremendous interest in verifying 
these. And if one out of 10 children had verifiable memories of someone else's life, that would mean a lot more than the highly publicized one out of a million cases of, uh, uh, of potential reincarnation that we've all heard of. So the fact that just such a study and just such a database has not been created, that says a lot to me about the validity of reincarnation. And Jim Tucker, the guy who was interviewed, he did say that he had a database of, I think, 2,000 reincarnation accounts. So I'm actually going to reach out to that guy and ask, hey, why don't you just open source that database and then a certain proportion of the reincarnation accounts should be things that you could validate with like public public records. And then if, I don't know, if 10% of them are correct or 25% of them are correct, that might make me change my mind about reincarnation. For the time being, it goes into the same category for me as flat earth. Uh, if it were real, there would be overwhelming, unignorable, manifest evidence for it. And I, I may have just pissed off the, the flat earthers out there. I know there's a couple of you guys that, that follow me. Check out the, the video that I did on flat earth. I've got some, I think I've got some fairly unique sorts of thoughts about it. Ultimately, I find the Christian conception of the afterlife much more comforting. And here's why. After 80, 90, or 100 years, or maybe even more, you know, I am an obsessive, uh, pragmatic, transhumanist biohacker. I might live a long time. So after 80, 90, 100 years of watching Western civilization devolve into idiocracy, I will really want to leave this world and go be with my creator. That, that's going to sound really good at the time, at that point, uh, which I suspect will come for me eventually. And reincarnation, which is the prospect of being dumped back into this shit show and just hoping that I'm not born to uh, evil, child-abusing parents or aborted, burned to death with acid in my new mother's womb, that would be deeply disturbing to countenance on my deathbed. Reincarnation is kind of a cool idea when you're like a younger person or a middle-aged person because you're like oh I'm gonna get the opportunity for a for a do-over I'm gonna have this this new novel experience of a of a new life it's gonna be so exciting but 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 as an old person who's world weary uh, I, I think it's an awful idea but maybe that's just me let me know in in the comments what you guys and gals think of uh, reincarnation. Next fringe science topic it touches on is psychic pets 
Yes, that's right. Quote, one of the easiest to test scientifically was the claim that many people make that their dog or cat knows when they're coming home and goes and waits at the door or window. The people see it waiting there and they know when the absent person is on the way. I found there had been virtually no research into this. Skeptics dismissed it as being a natural routine or the dog picking up sounds from the person coming home, like a familiar car engine or smell from miles away or whatever. They explained it away, but I did proper experiments to test this. We had people come at random times in unfamiliar vehicles, and we filmed the place where the dog waited. We found that with a dog called JT, 85% of the occasions when the owner was coming home, the dog was indeed waiting for her. We, he started when she decided to come home, before she even got into the vehicle, and he waited there most of the time. This happened at random times of the day in different vehicles, taxis, and other vehicles that she'd never been in before. We built up a body of evidence from this and other dogs showing that there seems to be a real ability and that it seems to be a matter of the dog picking up the person's intentions. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? And in anyone who's had dogs, who's had good dogs, who's had pets, they'll tell you, they'll tell you this, that their, their pets seem to have a, a uncanny intuitive ability to, uh, to, to figure things out, uh, to pick up on some of the intentions of the pet owners. And Rupert Sheldrake wrote a book on this science, and it's entitled Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming home. So maybe that book would be a good uh, gift idea for the dog lover in your life. And on YouTube, you can find uh, psychic dog experiments. You can find YouTube videos of people recreating the experiment that they're talking about here. Next, let's talk about faith healing. So apparently, even metaphysical skeptics were able to cure cancer with faith healing, in mice at least, with laying on of hands. A quote from the book. They were working for 20 years on a particular mammary cancer in laboratory mice. 20 years, wow. And they knew exactly what was going to happen. There were literally thousands of published studies on these mice. They'd get injected with a particular form of cancer. They're particularly bred. So I think they're talking about the, what is it, P20 knockout mice? They're actually pretty inbred. And after they're injected, you know exactly 
what's going to happen. The tumor is going to grow. It's going to be non-metastatic. It's going to kill the mouse in a certain number of days. At the time we started this, the record for longest-lived mouse was 27 days. No mouse in literally thousands of experiments had lived longer than 27 days after injection with this particular memory cancer. Never happened before for any reason. So the world's longest living mouse with this kind of cancer was 27 days. But after it went through this process of growth, growth and then ulceration, then implosion, the mice were cured. I used to say they remitted, but that's the wrong word because remitted means a reduction in symptoms or temporary disappearance. These mice are cured for life. So we watch them and we leave them for two years and they would just live out their normal lifespan. And it goes even further than that. We re-injected them with the cancer, but the cancer wouldn't take any more. So the mice are cured for life. Boy, that... Uh, Maybe that, maybe that can give some hope to uh, someone that has, that has cancer that's going through the hell of iatrogenic mainstream treatment that they had, a, they, had a, they had a faith healer that would teach skeptics a particular uh, methodology of uh, laying on of hands. And yeah, it sounds like it, it worked. Uh, the results are pretty fantastic there. And the author describes an energy healing experience he had. I followed through with eight energy healing sessions in all with Doran. About a week after the eighth treatment, I finally reached a point I hadn't been in months. I didn't think about heart palpitations. They weren't there. They were gone. I have had a couple of reoccurrences in the months since, but only a few, and very mild ones at that. For me, the treatment was an amazing success. Next, we'll mention mindfulness research. Look at the advances in the research of mindfulness. I've been working in it for 44 years, and there has been some genuine advance in research on the subject of mindfulness. Some of it is very, very good. A lot of it is mediocre. But the advances being made are definitely consistent with people coming to deal with the fact that the choices and decisions that one makes about how to focus have real effects on the brain. Even people in academia are doing that research. You can see the top researchers, people who have been engaged in this kind of mindfulness research over 10 years now, who used to be staunch materialists, they're now having second thoughts. And they're saying, hmm, 
there seems to be more to this than just the brain, because the brain alone doesn't explain the data. Next, let's talk about extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And I'll quote from a debate that the author was having on his podcast. Me, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. That is anti-science, isn't it? Dr. Stephen Law. Why do you think that? Me, we've built this whole institution of science, the whole process of peer review, the whole process of self-correction around this idea that we will, by working together, discover what is real, what is not real, what is extraordinary, and what is not extraordinary. So the idea that after the fact, after the results come in, we say, you know, that's a pretty interesting result, but I deem that to be extraordinary. Therefore, you need an extra level of proof on that. I think it's just silly. And this is an interesting point, isn't it? I myself have repeated countless times, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof without really contemplating just what makes a claim extraordinary. I can certainly see how the demand for extraordinary proof serves the status quo in science and in society. You know, someone could say, oh, you're claiming that EMFs from smartphones cause cancer? Well, that's an extraordinary claim. You know, we've got billions of people using smartphones every day, and big telecom is making billions in quarterly profits. So you're going to need to run a $100 million 10-year population study that produces the most overwhelming and unambiguous data for us to even consider that your quote-unquote extraordinary claim might be the case, right? That's kind of something to think about. Maybe as opposed to saying, oh, uh, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence, maybe we should just let the evidence stand on its own. On conspiracy theories, quote-unquote conspiracy theories, the author writes, my experience as an entrepreneur had taught me to look for conspiracies in every deal because I had found that every important business transaction involving a considerable amount of money resulted in a conspiracy of some sort. And you'll hear skeptics, uh, you'll hear even reasonable kind of mainstream sort of people say, oh, 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 I don't believe in conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories are all incorrect. And this is just such a naive way to look at the world. It is, of course, human nature to conspire. When I was younger, I got into this really crazy situation with, in business with a startup company where we had an 
investor that was crazy, that was uh, crazy, literally demented with uh, uh, multiple personality disorder. And he was just showering us with all this money. And right away, we started to conspire. Right away, we started to try to, we, we right away, politics intervened. And we tried to figure out ways to, uh, to, to profit, to take most advantage of the situation. And of course, that's what everyone else is going to do. We are conspiratorial by nature. Next, let's talk about Christianity versus atheism. The author writes, the Christian paradigm insists there is more to this world than meets the eye. The atheist counterpunch is the kind of mind equals brain scientific materialism that inevitably leads them to the conclusion that life is a meaningless illusion created by biological robots. And I said in the introduction that I'd explain a little bit of my transition from atheist to Christian. And the crack in my atheism, it actually first formed when, as a biohacker, spending a lot of time on PubMed, I saw that the most credible science always controlled for the placebo effect mentioned earlier. So I watched all the documentaries I could find on the placebo effect, and I read You Are the Placebo by Dr. Dispenza. And the placebo effect refutes scientific materialism. And if scientific materialism is wrong, then atheism is wrong. And you have to embrace some kind of mysticism or spirituality. So I choose to embrace the spirituality the religion, the metaphysical worldview of my ancestors in the same way that I eat blueberries in the fall time. I'm a big fan of the um, biohacks and the lifestyle design of trying to practice the types of habits that my ancestors had for generations and generations and generations. If something was good enough for them, then it's probably good enough for me. There's a tremendous arrogance in modern people abandoning all these things that their ancestors had done, all these things that resulted in them, all these things that resulted in the civilization and the world and the, the lives of abundance that we're able to enjoy. So yeah, like I said, I will, I, I read up on blueberries because I love blueberries and I found out that my ancestors, well, they were most likely only eating the blueberries in the fall time. It was a biohack to fatten them up a little bit so that they had enough calories to get through the cold, dark winters here in Europe. And I kind of take the same approach with faith. If my ancestors were Christians for the last 
50, 100 generations, then that's good enough for me. Something else, though, uh, another scientific philosophical thing that pushed me out of the atheist camp and, and back back into the pew, you might say, was this really excellent documentary I watched about simulation theory or the simulation hypothesis. And I do link to this documentary. It was by uh, Kent Forbes, Fobbs, something like that. I have it in the article. Do go and check it out. If you're willing to accept the possibility that reality is a simulation, and there is some evidence for this, then Christianity, a God who wants a personal relationship with you, who sent his son, a, a part of himself, to live with us and teach us a higher form of morality, the universalist morality, all that, the whole Christian narrative, that starts to make sense in light of the simulation theory. A, a programmer of a grand simulation that we are denizens of would want to, would, would likely, possibly, want to have interaction with us, would want to possibly have a relationship with us. You can think about all of the world-building computer games where you are looking down on the world and you've got little people down there in buildings and they're, they're fighting wars and gathering resources. And the world games that are the most interesting and the most fun are the ones where you get to interact with your creation, where you get to have a little bit of a relationship going on. So given the possibility of the simulation theory the whole Christian doctrine, that whole message, it starts to make some sense. But that is not, uh, my reasons for becoming a Christian, again, are not uh, limited exclusively to that philosophical reasoning. There's some very pragmatic reasons as well. So, like I said, I was a atheist agnostic for uh, like five, five, six, seven years, and during that time, I was definitely not, I didn't hold myself to a very high moral standard. There's, there's plenty of moral failings during that time. And when I got married to my beautiful wife here in Bulgaria, made the decision to start a family, I knew that I had to hold myself to a higher moral standard and Sure enough, since I've re-embraced my faith, I am doing a better job of holding myself to a moral standard. Also, the science is pretty clear that people who are religious end up being a lot happier, healthier. They, 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 they have this existential question answered for them. And so the anxiety about death is diminished dramatically. Being an atheist or an agnostic is when you're in your 20s, when you're a middle-aged person or a younger person, it's it's cool to be an atheist or an, or an agnostic. You, you feel like you're being kind of a edgy and rebellious 
But once you start actually approaching death, it's, it's a terrifying prospect to countenance the complete and utter deletion of yourself. And I don't want that. I want to go into death looking forward to an exciting um, next chapter of things. Another reason why I decided to be a Christian, again, is that the globalist left hates Christianity. They seek endlessly to destroy and subvert it. So that, that means it's probably what I should be practicing. And I'll mention, again, family. Of course, there's a major connection between faith and family. And I do intend to raise my children that we have eventually as Christians because uh, if I do not raise them with a religion, then they will adopt a religion and they will almost certainly end up being indoctrinated into the new religion of postmodern liberalism. And this is a religion that offers all that offers all the same that offers uh, scorn and judgment of sin, but it does not offer people forgiveness. It does not offer people grace. And my children are going to be white, of course, and without Christianity, without a religion, they're going to be indoctrinated into this religion that's going to make them hate themselves for their skin color. And that is going to have all of these, all of these knock-on negative ramifications. You can see in the West where people are indoctrinated from such a young age into uh, what they call anti-whiteism, you can see that they have just all these dramatic uh, mental health issues that young people have because they're, they're taught to hate themselves in public school. And you give a child religion and they have something else to believe in, at least in the young formative years, when their, their ego and their sense of self-esteem is developing. And, and then as they get older, hopefully, they're, hopefully they'll explore everything and they'll end up making the best decision for themselves. And then along with that, clearly the world is becoming a more tribal place uh, because of postmodern liberalism, uh, especially in the West, which is where I intend to live, either here in Europe or in America, where I'm from, we are regressing morally by about 2,000 years. We're regressing, we're giving up the Christian universalist morality, and we are adopting tribal morality. That's just the reality of the situation. And so I want to be part of a tribe. I want to be part of a group of people that will stand up for me. And Christians seems like a pretty good group to me. So those are kind of some of my thoughts on why, what motivated me to make that transition from atheist to Christian. And I'm thinking 
if people are interested, let me know. If people are interested, I'll do a deeper dive article on that. I was thinking as a title, I might say, PubMed convinced me to be a Christian. Because that's where it started. It started with PubMed and all of those placebo-controlled trials. Anyways, back to the book. It questions if the paradigm in science, if the scientific materialist paradigm is shifting. Could we be at the brink of such a change in science? Is the materialistic science as we know it paradigm at a tipping point? Are thousands of go-along to get-along scientists ready to loosen up their lab coats and move past this absurd insistence that we are biological robots in a meaningless world. As you've seen, there is plenty of evidence in favor of a more expansive view of who we are. But do we have the will to embark on such a massive shift? Boy, that's a big question. And I would hope that a paradigm shift is in the wind for science. But I'm somewhat pessimistic on this point because of the money and funding issue in science. There was another book that I reviewed. You may not want to read the book itself because it was kind of boring, but you'll want to check out my podcast of Rigor Mortis, How Sloppy Science Creates Worthless Cures, Crushes Hope, and Wastes Billions. And the book gets really detailed about how the fund about these draconian um, authoritarian funding mechanisms in science and how the billions and billions and billions of taxpayer dollars that get funded through this uh, Byzantine uh, corrupt uh, bureaucracy of the state and then finally gets in the hands of the science how this funding bureaucracy ensures conformity and it ensures that people are going to stay in their lane and not really challenge the paradigms that we have now. So, and we can see in response to COVID that has dramatically changed the world, we can see how there's it looks like there's going to be even more funding going, even more government funding going into science. So, yeah, I think that science is, is until the money dries up, until we uh, replace the current system with, uh, I don't know, blockchain-based economy, I think that science is, I, I think it's going to advance one funeral at a time, as the saying goes. Moving towards my conclusion on this book review, consciousness is not meaningless. A quote from the final chapter of the book. Science is wrong about almost everything because science is married to this absurd idea that you and I don't really exist. It says we're just an illusion created by this meaningless electrochemical reaction going on inside our brains. 
We don't live our lives as if we're biological robots because everything about life tells us we're not. But in the halls of academia and in the respected journals of science, the myth must be propped up to stay in the respectable science club one must nod as the emperor marches by wearing nothing at all. So ultimately this book gets four stars from me instead of five and here's why. Its title is going to make its message about a more magical and mysterious world unapproachable by many. People are going to judge the book by its cover and say, this looks like a crazy flat earther's manifesto. I'm going to pass on this. And that's why I paraphrased this review why scientific materialism is wrong about almost everything. So those are my thoughts on this book. I look forward to listening to more of the Skeptico podcasts. I am curious about what your thoughts are on everything that I delved into here. So do drop me a comment, a message on social media, or an email or whatever. I'm Jonathan with a Limitless Mindset. Looking forward to a continued conversation with you.